Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. Well, it's the end of July here now when I'm recording this. I think this episode will drop closer to the 1st of August or early August, but it's been fall migration for shorebirds around here and time to get to the mountains. I'm from uh, Pierce County, Washington, and we are really lucky in Pierce County to have the mountains, Mount Rainier National Park in particular. And I love getting up for hikes this time of year in the mountains. Uh, I did one of my favorite hikes there this morning. I went up uh, the Lake Eleanor Trail. It's a trail that uh, you go 10 miles off Highway 410 up the Sturt Road, and you find the trailhead, and you walk through maybe a hundred yards or two of uh, land outside the National Park and then you come to a sign that says you're entering Mount Rainier National Park and you go on from there. It's a great hike. Uh, the first part can be a little squishy. It goes through this wet woodland marshy sort of area for the first half mile or so. So you need uh, waterproof boots to get through that uh, and uh, kind of meander on the drier aspects of the trail. But once you're past that, it's a, not a terribly difficult hike for the first couple of miles. You go up to Mount Eleanor and then from there you go on uh, to Grand Park. Grand Park is really a giant meadow uh, in Mount Rainier National Park that has terrific vistas. I didn't quite get up to the big meadow today. Uh, My main target for this trip in a birding sense was to see American three-toed woodpecker. Marcus and Heather, guests on a previous episode, had found this bird, uh, found four American three-toed woodpeckers a week or so ago in a place that we've been finding them for the last few years. So I had excellent directions on where to find them. And I got up early because I wanted to beat the crowds. I usually try not to go to the mountains on a weekend. This is Saturday. But this week kind of was filled up and I ended up going up on a Saturday. So I got up early and got to the trailhead at 6.30. So it's almost a two-hour drive to get there. So I was up with the Tweety Birds and got there and walked through the squishy stuff. And it was quite birdie good for finches. I had lots of uh, red crossbills flying overhead doing their uh, jip-jip calls and a good number of evening grosbeaks calling overhead. Uh, So that was really fun to hear. Along with the usual species as I walked in, uh, Canada jays, quite a few of those were pretty raucous uh, low down on the trail. And as I got past the lake and up to the area for the woodpeckers, I no sooner showed up than Two American three-toed woodpeckers showed right up, gave great looks, and had a nice look at those. And it was uh, maybe 7.45 by then. So I thought about it and decided rather than to go the extra mile and a half or two up to Grand Park, uh, because it was a little clouded in and the mountain really wasn't going to be out that great by the time I got there, I decided to go back down and do a little birding on the way home. So I uh, wandered back out and did a little birding on the way home and got home early today. So uh, having a chance to do some of this uh, prep work for these podcasts. Uh, My guest this week is Sophie Wickham. Sophie is the warden at the Holm Bird Observatory in Norfolk County, England, and uh, got me to thinking a little about bird observatories. Bird observatories are not a term I think of a whole lot in the United States, although on research there are quite a few bird observatories in the U.S. Uh, There are more formal networks of bird observatories in Great Britain and Canada, and a bunch of them scattered throughout the world. In the podcast, we talk about uh, the Home Bird Observatory and Sophie's work there and how it functions, and I found that pretty interesting to learn about. I think you'll enjoy that, too. Uh, So hopefully, you will enjoy the Bird Banner Podcast, number 108, with Sophie Wickham. Thanks for listening. Sophie, thanks for being on the podcast today. How are you? 
Yes, I'm well, thank you, Ed. And yourself? I'm doing great, thank you. Uh, I've been to England a couple of times and have, have seen some of the variously named uh, wildlife areas there. But you are the warden at the Norfolk Bird Observatory, is that correct? Well, I'm warden at the Home Bird Observatory. Oh. So we're the, only, we're the only accredited bird observatory in Norfolk. Oh, okay. Um, but we're just in one little corner, really. Okay. Tell me about that. Uh, yeah, bird observatory. It, you know, we don't have names like that much in the U.S. What is a bird observatory? I think there's a whole network of them in, in, in Great Britain, aren't there? Yes, that's right. There, there are, I think, 18 um, U.K. bird observatories at present um, around the coast of the U.K. and Ireland. And uh, their job is to monitor bird and wildlife migration. Um, but we, we tend to focus on birds, but most observatories also record insects. Um, they, they might record cetaceans and things like that as well. Okay. Um, so so it's, uh, uh, it is, as you say, it's a, a, a network of organisations monitoring wildlife migrations. So with birds, do you, I know you do a lot of what we call banding, you call ringing. Uh, and what's, how do you do the observations? Yes. How do you keep your records? Okay, so at, at home we have um, what we call a census form. Um, at, at the end of every day we try to record, um, we have uh, a reserve which we actually manage and then beyond that we have a recording area which is much larger. We try to record how much of the recording area has been covered by observers during that day and then we try and have um, a, a number of every species that might have been seen during the course of that day. Um, okay. so, so we have uh, birds, we would also do um, insects, mammals, reptiles, as, as much as we can really. Okay. And try and keep that on a daily basis. Wow. And do that year round or just during migration? No, we do actually operate all year round. The, oh. the, um, the charity that runs the observatory is based here. So we have full-time staff who are here almost every day of the year really. Okay. And you have uh, a lot of volunteers doing this, or do you have employees doing this primarily? Well, we have um, three paid employees. There's myself, we have uh, Gary Elton, who I think you, you know. Yes. Um, and uh, he works for us two days a week. I work the other five. Uh, that's based at, at home. And then we have an assistant warden who is full-time, Emma Buck, and she's based on our uh, two of our other reserves, which are Hempton Marsh near Fakenham and Wolsey Hills, which is near Clyde, further along the Norfolk coast. Okay. Uh, so it sounds like you have pretty good coverage of your area. And uh, how, how long has this been going on? Has this been many years? It's been quite a few years now. Yes, we're, um, we're rapidly approaching our 60th anniversary as a bird observatory. So um, the observatory at home was founded by Peter Clark in September 1962, and um, so that was the that was the only site to begin with, um, and then the organisation uh, did did quite well after a few years, and was able to acquire some other pieces of land, some other reserves, and expanded to become a registered charity. Um, I think that was in 1970. Um, so we have four visitor reserves now. Two of them are in home and uh, the, the other two that I mentioned previously that Emma is responsible for at the moment. 
So how is the information that you gather used? Is it collected along with the other bird observatories in, in, in Great Britain? Or is it uh, sort of siloed? Or, or how is it, uh, what do you do with that information? Um, we use it in-house to produce our own annual report. So the NOA produces a report which gives information about um, the wildlife of all its own reserves. Um, we also supply that information to the British Trust for Ornithology um, to their bird track system. Uh, and all the bird observatories do that, okay. um, you know, in, in various forms. We've also just recently been involved in a biodiversity audit of the North Norfolk coast. So the University of East Anglia has been assimilating all the, uh, the biological data it can find um, for areas north of the main coast road where there's a whole chain of nature reserves um, which are monitoring the biodiversity of, of the wider area. So that's been a very big project and we've been able to include data from the last 25 years. There's been, there's been rather a lot of it and it was rather a, a good project during the lockdown to put together all that information to provide it to the university for that. So it's been very exciting to be involved in that too. Very cool. Uh, so you're the warden of your uh bird observatory wardens you know in in the u.s we think of wardens as either sort of police officers sort of types game wardens or the warden at a prison uh, what, yeah. what what is the job of a warden uh, at a bird observatory or what what is your job well um as the warden of the noa i'm actually responsible for for all our reserves ultimately but um wardening wardening the observatory is quite a varied job so uh, it often involves being the main ringer, being the person who takes the wildlife observations for the day, who coordinates the volunteers, meets the visitors. You know, our organisation is small enough that all these roles and quite a large amount of administration uh, tend to be rolled up into the one one function. So, um, so yeah, it's 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 nice because it's varied. Uh, it can be quite pressuring, busy times of year and, and you know, when migration's going on and so on, that's when we have our most uh, visitor numbers and things like that. So, um, yeah, and then times of year which are much slower, um, you have a lot of paperwork to do. So it, it's always changing. It's, it's, it's nice that way. Sounds like a pretty good job. So tell me about the Home Bird Observatory. What is the habitat there like? What sort of birds do you see? If I was going to visit there, what would I, as a birder, what would I look to? Okay, so the, the Bird Observatory, first of all, the reason why the Bird Observatory location was chosen and is special is because it's on quite an unusual um, change of direction on the coast. So we're in the northwest, very northwest corner um, of North Norfolk, just as the coast changes to the south and runs into the wash, which is this huge estuary. And so birds are following the coast. They're generally following the coast from east to west, and they're not expecting the direction of the coastline to change in that direction. So that's often when they stop or turn around. Um, and then because we have, uh, there's quite a large range of good habitats um, in close proximity. So um, we're actually in the shelter of a chain of Corsican pine trees, um, but just to the south of them, there's, there's a lot of scrub, which is very suitable for migrating birds. That They, they produce fruit, they attract a lot of insects. Um, and we're next to a, a, a brackish lagoon, 
um, which is also quite an unusual habitat. And to the south of that, there's a very extensive um, grazing marsh, which is a fresh marsh. Um, and then we have uh, the seawall, the other side of which is salt marsh, and then you have dunes and beach and so on. So there's there's a lot of different habitats all, all close by, and, and we're in a location where we're close to all of it. So we get a lot of variety. Um, we, we watch seabirds and shorebirds and, and um, wildfowl, and then we get, we get a lot of land birds as well, raptors and, and all kinds of different birds. So it's quite hard to narrow down what you might actually see here at any given time. Um, in the winter, it's particularly the wildfowl and the waders that are special because the water levels on the marshes are always higher then. Mm -hmm. um, spring and autumn, it really could be anything. So it sounds like a pretty hot, pretty hot birding spot. Good for you. Nice to, if you have to go count the birds, it's great to be doing it in a place where there's a good variety and good numbers. Yeah, it's, it's small, but special. Very nice. Uh, what, what are some of the, are there some species there that are, you know, particularly desirable for listers? I mean, people, do you get uh, relatively uncommon birds there or is it more uh, just a nice variety of usual species? Um, well, we, we do get uh, more than our fair share of rarities because of our proximity to um, Europe, mm -hmm. um, to continental Europe. And that's particularly true in autumn. So birds that have been breeding in Scandinavia, when they're making their southward migrations, mm -hmm. um, they can drift or be blown over uh, the North Sea and end up on the east coasts of, of the UK, which is, you know, it's it's the most exciting time. So the sort of rare birds that people tend to come here for are birds from, from Central and Eastern Europe in particular. Um, so for example, in 2020, we had a very unusual number of red flank blue tails, oh, nice. um, which is a, an Eastern species. Um, a lot of these are birds which would be breeding in Southeast Asia. So they're actually coming a very long way from their normal um, geographical locations um, for sure. but other you know other specialities of, of our site would be things like yellow-browed and palaces warbler uh, red-breasted flycatcher is another very popular one these these are the birds that that people most want to see are, are, are and there's a lot of the little brown jobs as well so um, <laughs> last year we had two dusky warblers on the site and a blithe reed warbler I mean You'd really need to sit for a long time with a book to work out which was which. Um, yeah. But uh, they're, they're very unusual birds. So, so and people do get very excited about them. Well, it sounds like you're a really good vagrant trap. That's terrific. Uh, Sophie, tell me about your career. How did, how did you come to be a birder? And how did you uh, come to be warden at the uh, observatory? Well, that's, that's quite a long story. Um, but I'll try and keep it as short as I can. So my, my parents were bird watchers. And they used to bring me and my brother to, to come here on holiday. Uh, there's a lovely beach here. We used to play on the beach and my parents would sit in the dunes and look for seabirds. And of course, as I got older, I got drawn into that. I did have a different career originally. I, I worked with horses and I taught horse riding to children. Um, and I damaged my back too badly to be able to continue with that. And I got used to working outside. So it was the only other thing I really felt that I could do happily, but of course, it's not an easy sector to move into, and especially when you don't have any qualifications or background. So I did seven years as a volunteer, 
and I did I did uh, an evening job so that I could pay my way and 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 stay at the observatory. I did my training as a ringer during that time, and I learned all about the wildlife that was here. And eventually, I was given a paid job, and uh, and um, you know that was 20 years ago that I began as a volunteer, and um, still here. So it worked out for me, but it wasn't a very conventional route in. So they just couldn't get rid of you. Good job. Good job for persistence. I like that story. <laughs> Do you get a chance to get birding uh, other than uh, at your home turf very often? Um, I don't go twitching very much now. Um, I do tend to wait for good birds to come to home. They mean a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, what I do like doing, and, and I, I do some of it in my own time, is uh, monitoring farmland birds locally. So, so um, there are a number of good areas of, of private land um, where I do surveys mm -hmm. um, and I provide that information to, to the landowners and managers to, to help them with their conservation efforts. And I find that a really good way of, of making sure that I get out and, and just concentrate on observing because the job can have a lot of other distractions. Sure. I visited England, as I said, a couple of times, and I, I believe that the, on the agricultural areas, they have uh, pretty decent rules about needing to keep you know, pretty good hedgerows between the fields and that sort of thing. I, I was impressed that you know, it wasn't just, in our country, a lot of times you just see vast, you know, mile after mile after mile of agricultural land with not a bush or anything for habit, for cover or habitat. But I, it seemed like there were what they, what I believe were called hedgerows or, you know, rows between the fields that, you know, held a fair amount of uh, wildlife. Yes, that's right. And, and um, the, the, the government in the UK has um, provided financial incentives in different forms over the years to encourage farmers to provide those sorts of habitats on their land and compensate them for loss of production area and things like that. And those schemes are quite good, you know, um, they, they, they do get good results. And this is one of the things that I wanted to record, um, particularly with some of the changes that are happening in the country at the moment. A lot of, a lot of this was, was funded by Europe and of course we've, we've now left Europe. Right. Um, and there are new incentives coming in but with monitoring, it's much easier to show what's already been achieved and, and what still could be in the future. Do you perceive the, the Brexit and the leaving the European Union as something that's going to be uh, net positive or otherwise for conservation in, in Great Britain? I think that's quite a difficult question to know the real answer to. I certainly was concerned about the principle of leaving Europe for the reason that there is, a, there has been a good support system from Europe to encourage uh, good wildlife protection and and good schemes in agriculture to protect wildlife, um, and I think that in general there is a feeling that those schemes, well, there is an expectation that those schemes will be less financially rewarding, but they're going to be replaced with something else, mm -hmm. which will have a slightly different focus. And so, you know, that's, that's prompted some activity for more farmers to get involved and, and to look ahead at how they can, you know, how they can make the most of that um, and do the best they can for wildlife going forward, because that is really going to count. So I think it's very much a case of waiting to see what the results really are. 
Um, but it, it, it is a concern. I'll definitely say that, yeah. Time will tell. Uh, how worldwide, you know, bird numbers have decreased, you know, considerably. I don't know if you read the science article about that, but uh, there, there's a, a big drop in total numbers of birds, wild birds in the world. How has, uh, yeah, you've been, you have 60 years or so of data for your little area. Uh, what, what has happened in, in your opinion or experience with, uh, you know, just numbers of birds, various species, what species are doing well, what ones aren't? What, what's your take on that? Well, yes, I think it is very worrying what's going on generally. We, we certainly see our share of that here. Just to give an example, um, when I first started working here 20 years ago, uh, the first time I was ever um, ringing birds um, was in the spring. So it was late April and we had a big movement of warblers going on. That's fairly normal. Very high proportion of those birds were willow warblers um, and that was one of the main spring migrants that we would get right. coming through a site like home um, they're much much less common now so we might be looking at maybe only uh, less than double figures um, that, that we might actually be, be ringing or banding in in the course of a week Oh. Uh, during spring migration, whereas I think we would have been looking at nearer three figures for a, for a spring migration um, 20 years ago. Um, and what, from what I've heard and read, the willow warblers are actually doing, doing better further north. So the migration is still happening, but it is, they've extended their range as migrants. Um, mm. and, and there are far more now, I believe, in Scotland um, and northern parts of England, and, and we get far fewer in Norfolk. Um, we, we certainly are still seeing um, ongoing decreases in numbers of birds like swallows, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I think these are often uh, weather-related and, and related to sort of climatic weather events that, that hit birds at the wrong time. So it can sure. hit their migration in different parts of the world, um, but it can also really sort of affect them during their breeding season. In 2018, 2019, we had quite serious drought here. And when it's too dry, insect feeding birds like swallows, they just can't find food on the wing. It, it, sure. it's, it's too arid. Um, and that means they can't feed their young. And so year on year, we've had, you know, quite recently a decrease in, in the numbers of swallows that have been coming back each year. And it is quite marked. So that's, that's quite worrying. Um, we see consequent um, sort of increase, increases in other species. So um, we, we're now getting not only little egrets, which were, were very unusual 20 years ago. Um, they're, they're now very common residents. Um, we're starting now to get resident great white egrets. And this year we've started seeing cattle egrets in this part of the world. We know that they've been in the southwest as increasingly as a, as a breeding species, but then they've, they've actually reached our little corner now as well. Um, and I expect that that will go on increasing. So there are some species that when I first came, you never saw, which we're now, we're now getting all the time. I think that's happening everywhere. You know, there's obviously a lot of theories as to that, but it seems like climate change probably has to be playing a big role. Yeah, definitely. 
So uh, how many visitors come to your area? Is it easy? Is it an easy place to visit as a birder or is it, uh, you know, out of the way or hard to park or are there, are there obstacles or what, what, what's it like to go birding there? It's, it's moderately easy. Um, so many observatories are on islands mm-hmm. and, and sort of very remote parts. We're actually not far from the, the main coast road, which people use to access the, the you know, these, these lovely coastal areas of, of North Norfolk. Um, so yeah, it's it's not that difficult to get to. It's not it's not a particularly big road, um, and the reserve itself is is about a mile and a half along a very bumpy track, which has some big potholes in. But you can get you can get to it by road, um, and and there's there's parking available at the bird observatory, and we're next door to a bigger nature reserve, um, which which also has parking for for visitors. And there's uh, the Norfolk Coast Path, which comes from the village to the east of us. And so people can access us on foot from there as well. So we, we do get quite a lot of visitors, um, but they don't necessarily find the observatory. They tend to find the beach first. Yeah, well, some people are birding and some people are bathing. So you get both kinds. It's not always that. It's not always that warm, the water, I have to say. <laughs> I've been in a few times. So uh, you are the you said you're the warden of the North, Norfolk Ornithological Association. What other uh, things does the association do besides run the observatory? We have our four reserves, and we would normally be doing um, a series of events each year. There's not very many, but we we mainly run moth events for, for people it's one of one of the uh, the easiest ways that you can really present wildlife um, for people to see so we run two moth traps at the observatory throughout the year um, but we would also have a moth day where we put out extra traps and then moth enthusiasts would come it's a free event and and they can um, see us identifying um, the moths that are in the traps and and have a have a good look at them maybe take photographs and um and then i mean we we always release our moths at at the end of each day so that they can they can get back to a natural way of life and that's that's one of the things that people like we we have an annual general meeting every year um where we would do a sort of photographic review of all the all the special wildlife events of, of the past 12 months and we would we would normally have you know that as a as a face-to-face meeting and with with you know uh, a few drinks and nibbles afterwards but obviously with the pandemic that's not been that's not been possible in the last in the last 12 months so we we don't we don't have regular meetings like a lot of bird clubs very cool how are how are you funded are you funded through governmental uh, help or is it all uh, uh donations or or dues or how do you uh how do you make it financially well, there's, there's quite a combination of things. Um, we, we are an independent charity, so we don't get government support per se for, for the work that we do. But as owners and managers of land, we do have nature reserves that, uh, in, that are entitled to agri-environment grant funding for management as nature reserves. So we, we benefit from that reward system, which I was talking about earlier. Right. That helps us with our funding. But the main source of funding for us is is membership of the association. 
So people pay an annual subscription and for that they can visit our reserves between dawn and dusk um, and they get a copy of our annual report. We also have um, a number of hides which are kept for members and you can have a key for the hides as, as a member and, okay. and, then, and then have access to those whenever you like. So we, we have that. We also have a day permit system for people who just want to come in and have a, a look around as a one-off or, or, or just on the hoof. And, um, and that helps to, to cover some of our costs as well. And we have a number of very sort of generous supporters. Um, we've, we've had help from the Goldcrest Charitable Trust um, and various other donors that have helped us to fund special projects. So, you know, replacing infrastructure, things like boardwalks and hides and so on, has had to happen from time to time. Um, our, our reserve at Hempton Marsh had uh, lottery grants in 2008, which allowed us to develop that so that it could it could safely be accessed by visitors without harming the wildlife there. And, and so we've been fortunate in, in getting support from quite a lot of different areas. Very cool. Do volunteers play a big role for you? Yes. Yes, they do. Um, we, we have a range of volunteers. Mainly they help with observations. So because we have quite often only one warden on duty at a time, and they might need to spend at least some of that time in the office. We are very grateful for people that come and, and do, uh, they might do a count of seabirds or they might just tell us everything that they've seen while they've been walking around. And information sharing um, is, is a really important part of that. Sure. Uh, what, what sort of challenges are you facing as an organization other than governmental uh, issues? Well, I mean, besides, besides the changes in agri-environment funding, um, which, which was our concern before the pandemic, I think the, the most recent concern that we've had has, has simply been the very sharp increase in the number of visitors coming to home. So it, it is um, an area of outstanding natural beauty. Um, there, there are protected species here, and there, there are a number of protections on the area, which is, which is as it should be. But it's also incredibly popular for people using the beach, for people wanting to walk, and quite often for people who want to do things that they're not actually permitted to do. Um, uh, things, things like, um, you know, riding a scramble bike over the dunes or the marshes. Mm -hmm. um, riding horses along sections of this area is not actually possible. The seawall's not actually designed for that. Mm -hmm. um, and increasingly, people are relying on information from their mobile phones. They don't necessarily know the area. And it's important to be able to have, you know, sort of positive interactions with people, which explain the difficulty with what they're trying to do and ask them to amend their behaviour to, to something which is going to be less damaging to wildlife and safer for them. So um, during the pandemic, uh, the, the first lockdown was particularly difficult because we had such a beautiful summer and it was so hot. Um, and people wanted to come to the beach and have barbecues. They couldn't travel abroad to spend time on a beach, so they sure. were coming here. Um, and, of course, we were very afraid that the place was going to go up in smoke. Yeah. Um, I would walk up and down and see if I could smell a barbecue and have to call it through to the to the wildlife trust warden so that he could go and have a word, you know. And these were sometimes they were young people who'd had a few beers sure. and they just wanted to have fun. And that's very challenging because the pressure is actually a serious problem now. 
but it's not the fault of an individual person who's coming to do X, Y, or Z uh, at, at the site. So, yeah, we, it's it's taking a lot of collaboration and cooperation to try and and deal with the pressures sensibly and still make it a good place for people to visit. Well, it sounds like uh, you know issues, but issues you're working through nicely. So that's good, uh, Sophie. <laughs> If a listener wanted to to get a hold of you or the the observatory uh, per se, what would be the best way? Is there a contact on your website page, or how would somebody reach out to you guys? Yeah, so um, our homepage is at www.noa.org.uk, and on there there is a contact email address which comes straight through to this office, and uh, we can answer any queries. And, and supply any information that, that, that we're able, that people want. So, you know, really happy to get contact from people. We often get emails from people who um, they, want, they want to know about a particular bird that they've seen or they want to know about visitor arrangements and so on. One of, one of the common things is people wanting to come and stay at our observatory, but we're actually so small that we aren't able to provide accommodation a number right. of observatories in the UK can do that, um, but but uh, Holm isn't one of them. We we have one little office which is about the size of the garage, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> are are the is there a a governing body or some sort of association of all the bird observatories, or are you all pretty independent? No, we all belong to the Bird Observatories Council. So, so that is that is our governing body, and and that's administered by the British Trust for Ornithology. Um, so, so we're all we're all part of that. Um, it's quite common for bird observatories to have their own parent charities. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we're we're the same but different, if that makes sense. No, I kind of get that. I'll I'll look into that, and I write a blog post to go along with each uh, episode, so I'll try to uh, boil that down into something that uh, readers or listeners might be able to figure out. At least I can figure out and put something about that there. I'll also put a link in the podcast notes to your website, and I think you have a Facebook page too. I'll make sure I put that in. I think we're on Twitter. Okay. Um, so so face Facebook. Facebook wasn't working for us, but we do have we do have a Twitter account. Okay, I will find that. What is your Twitter handle? Um, at home birdobs. Okay, I will follow that, and uh, people will be able to find that on at Birdbeater if they're looking for it. <laughs> okay, That's very well. Thanks, Sophie. Thank you so much for being my guest today. I appreciate it, and uh, good luck with uh, all things going forward. Thank you very much. It's been lovely talking to you, Ed. You take care. Yes. Well, that wraps up the Burbainer podcast number 108 with Sophie Wickham. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed. As always, there'll be a blog post on birdbanner.com where I leave links and more information, especially this time about the whole bird observatory network in Great Britain. It's pretty cool the way they've done that. I have leave a map of all the bird observatories there and some extra information about that. I think you'll enjoy that. And so until next time, thanks for listening. Good birding. Good day. <laughs>